Uh, Galatians 6, how about that? Verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with the spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Father, give us wisdom this morning. We want your words to pierce our hearts and your words to speak to us and to mold us and that your gift of teaching will, uh, will break through and, and that your word, not my word, becomes the lamp to their feet, the light for their path. In your name we pray, amen. If you want to keep a finger in Galatians and go to the book of Luke with me, Luke chapter 15. And I'd love it if you would turn there, if you have a Bible, or if you've got a magic Bible, the one on your phone, which is magic. Um, in soccer, they tell you to keep, keep kicking the ball. They want more touches because you get more comfortable with it. That's what uh, I would like for you with the Bible. I want you to be comfortable with it. And to, the more touches you have on it, the more there is. So I, I would love for you to turn there if, if you have a Bible with you. And if not, just scooch in closer to your neighbor, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind. Luke 15, verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? We had this happen at my home, but it was with our donkey when he escaped uh, because of the forbidden love across the street of a mare, and we had to go and bring him home. <laughs> He wasn't real thrilled with that. But what wouldn't go? And we would. We would I mean, you know, we're, we're going. We're leaving the others behind to go and get Earl. And Jesus is using this as a picture saying, hey, what wouldn't, wouldn't you go and get? If you had 99, 100 of them, wouldn't you go and get the one? And a lot of people um, would look at that and say, yeah, but isn't that, that's not fair to the 99. What about the, those? And is Jesus, you know, is he teaching an irresponsible thing? How do we... Until you realize that there are no 99, we're all the one. There are no 99 righteous people and one person going away. We're all sinners who are then saved by grace. And so it's really not unfair. It's him saying that I'm going to get you. I'm coming for you. And I'm reading this because I want you to hear the heartbeat of God is for you. It's for, it's for restoration. And so he says, wouldn't you go and get him? And verse 5, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need repentance, who need no repentance. And of course, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There are no 99. He's setting up a false juxtaposition here. And he goes on to say, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, in fairness, she doesn't need to sweep anything. She just needs to look in the cushions of the couch because that's where it always goes. <laughs> and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found, one, I have found the coin that I had lost. So just so I tell you, there is... Joy before uh, the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heartbeat of Jesus 
is restoration. The heartbeat of God is you, to bring you home. And I say that because when we go to Galatians 6 and we see this, the goal of restoration, if you would go back there with me, is, is the heart of God here, is to restore you. Now, incidentally, what, he, what does he not say? He doesn't say rescue. And I think that's critical, and we'll, in a minute we'll talk more about it. But when you're a rescuer, that puts the onus on you. That makes you the hero in the story, where Jesus is the hero. But it puts you in the pressure. And, and think about this, especially women in your past, when you've been the rescuer in a relationship, how'd that work out? Right? We're not about rescuing. Jesus is the rescuer. We're just part of a restoration process. And what we talked about last week was this person, if you will, this brother, this blundering brother. If you've been overtaken, and I say blunder because that's many of our stories. We didn't mean to get a quarter of a million dollars in debt. I didn't mean to end up in this relationship that I was in. I, but the blundering brother is that you've been sort of blundered into this. And it says for those of you that are in that situation, those of us who are, quote, spiritual, those of us who are uh, followers of Jesus are to restore you and to do it gently. And we, we shared the story last week, if you remember, uh, of uh, David and Laura Holderman, who were hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And they told the story of the husband and wife that came and brought them, sat with them every week, once a month, I guess, for a while, period, and a couple hours, and they would invest in them, helping them get out of the mess that they had blundered themselves into. The, the blundering believer, and our goal is restoration, and restoration, it just takes time. In the body of Christ, I think where we blunder ourselves is when we rush through restoration. I, I would love it if it were true that if I, you, uh, you just come down and I lay hands on you and then you're free. But I can lay hands on you and if you're a quarter of a million dollars in debt, you walk out the door a quarter of a million dollars in debt. You might be a little more well-rested if you were charismatic and fell down when I prayed for you, but, but <laughs> be that as it may, you're still a quarter of a million in debt and it just takes time. It's a process and and restoration is something as a church that I hope we get to be a part of more and more and more. Restoration is long obedience in the same direction, I think is the Eugene Peterson word. And over time, you begin to dig out. And what I think is important, though, is that it's something that it's a team sport. Because the next verse, he says, brothers, bear one another's burdens. And in so doing, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. That isn't just the lean on me song. That's actually us bearing each other's burdens, walking through the process. If, if you're a single mom who's single because you've walked away from an abusive husband or a, 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 a father or a husband that's walked away because of, of a wife that's made terrible decisions and you're in this, who's going to be? The, the children are still, there's burdens involved with it. And as a church, I want to be that. And we have been that. I think we could do better at it, but we have been that for, for many people over the years. But we can't be weary and well-doing, as Paul's going to talk about later in Galatians, but it's a spirit-led team sport to restore one another. But there's another kind of falling away, if you will, another kind of overtaken, another person, if you will. Not just the blundering believer, but go with me, uh, if you would, to the book of James, chapter 5. Because there's a, a person that here James is talking about 
that I resonate with and maybe you'll resonate with as well. Someone who he says in verse 19 of chapter 5, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word wanders is the word planeo in Greek. It's where we get our word planet from. The world. Anybody wanders, in other words, you're going to the world because you love this world. Now, when I grew up, the world, that meant when you're in the world, meant that you're going to hang out. So you're going to basically drink, smoke, and chew, and hang out with girls who do. Like, that was what we defined as the world. Anybody can I get a witness? Like, that was, <laughs> that was what we thought the world was. But that's not the idea that he's going after here. The world is this world. Williamson County? It's the world. It's awesome. Like, how many of you yesterday looked on Twitter or Facebook and remembered that this is the day every year when I really wish I lived in West Haven? Right? Porch Fest, Amy Grant's on like Brown's front porch, and we're like, wow, I want to live in that world. That's amazing. What other world is there where there's like a hundred concerts on people's front porches? Now, nothing wrong with that, but the danger is, is if I love this world... It's the good and the bad. I'm loving it. Here's the, here's the danger is now it's my home. Now it's what I long for this world instead of the world to come. What I love about Haiti is there is not a single little boy or girl that you meet in the mountains, in Africa, in Indonesia, or wherever, who love this world that much. Because they woke up in a world on a dirt floor. They woke up this morning with six or seven little boys and girls all crammed in a room. They woke up this morning with a mom who's... Uh, trying to take care of them and a dad they haven't seen in forever. They don't love this world like I love it. I used to feel sorry for them and now I don't. I feel sorry for us because the danger is, is that we can love this world too much. There's nothing wrong with it. I love this. When Jesus says it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, he says it's easier that it would be for a, for a camel through the eye of a needle. And by the way, everybody want to sit and look and think of the rich person you know. Look at yourself because you are part of the 1% of the world. He says it's, it's, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, but I love this, he says in that very next verse. Hey, but you know what? With God, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In the context of that passage, which is a very pregnant statement, is for us to say, it's thank God for that all things are possible through him who loves. So anyway, so this world. Now, think with me. This is... Someone who's enchanted by this world. Someone who is intrigued by it. Who is, if you would, beguiled by it. It's a beguiled brother. Not the blundering believer, but the beguiled brother who is enchanted and drawn to the things of this world. They're giving agape love, the God kind of love, not to God, but to possessions, to themselves. They don't own the possessions, the possessions own them. And as I was reading through this, I was intrigued. And if you've got your Bibles out still, go with me. Let's see. Let's go to the book of 2 Timothy first. I want to show you something. 2 Timothy 4. You know how there's the who's who of Scripture and then there's the who's that of Scripture? We're about to introduce you to who's that. Paul is writing his last written communication that we know of. He's about to be executed in Rome. And he says, 
Do your best to come soon. Verse 9, verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He loved this world. And he left Paul because of it. A lot of times on the mission field, it's easy to, to leave what God is doing or to leave what God, or to, to, I, I want to go, but I can't because I like this, right? You've heard me say this over the years, but in my music world, I would write, we'd book a concert and I would give a writer and say, hey, look, here's, here's what this artist will do. And then here are like, a th- like 30 pages of things they will or will not do. And as I followed Jesus, I said, oh, I'll follow you anywhere. But here's about 30 pages of what I will and will not do. For you, just in case, because I know me and what. Demas would say, I, I love this world, so I'm saying I won't do this or I will do that, because look, God, you know me. I don't like to sweat. I don't want to go to Haiti. I don't like this. I like to be. Uh, th- that's an example of loving this world. And Demas loved this world and left him. And then he goes on to say, Luke alone is with me. Verse 11 Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Get Mark. Does that ring a bell with anybody? It did me. Because in Acts 15, years ago in Paul's life, he and Barnabas were getting ready to head out on another missionary journey. And it says, um, let's see, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. It was like us, like David, hey, we're going back to Haiti next week. See how the brothers are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take them, take him with them, because he was one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone on with them it had not gone on with them to do the work. And there was a sharp disagreement, verse 39. And so they separated from each other. Paul and Barnabas, this powerful ministry team, blew up and separated from each other, never to work together. And Barnabas basically disappears from Scripture at this point. But listen, what's interesting, it was over John Mark, who had abandoned them and went back, possibly because of the same reason. It's, it's more comfortable here, and I, I, he left them there. Now think with me. He left him. Paul and Barnabas have this big blowout. Barnabas goes one way, Paul goes the other. Barnabas, by the way, whose name means son of encouragement, son of consolation. And at the end of Paul's life, the last written record we have of him, he says, and send for John Mark because he's been good for me. John Mark, the beguiled brother, brought back home. Even when Paul blew it, Barnabas saw it and brought him back, and he was right. And here he is, the beguiled brother, who was brought back home again. And he's been good for my ministry. I love that, by the way, because think about it in terms of the way that our father works. They're having this big disagreement. And maybe God said, hey, you know what? It'd be better for Paul to go one way and Barnabas to go the other. But you know what? We're never going to do that because we love each other too much. And this disagreement drove them apart. But God doing what he does gets in the middle of all things and works them together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Paul would later write. 
So that even when Paul blew it, God was still in the middle of it and said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out. And then later he would say here, or James would write these words then, hey, when you see somebody who is beguiled, someone who loves this world, planeo, go and don't, remo- uh, don't remove them, don't even restore them, but your goal is to go and to retrieve them. The blundering believer, we're to restore. The beguiled believer, we are to retrieve, to go back and to look and to find. We don't have to expose them. We don't need to be blasting them on Facebook. We're to go to them. And as brothers and sisters, man, I would love it if our church was a safe place for brothers who have been beguiled by this world, by, for sisters who are in love with the world, to be able to come and to feel safe and feel welcome. And it takes time, doesn't it? It took me a long time to divorce this world, if you will. I loved this world. And maybe, I don't know, some of you who are older might resonate with this, but isn't it the older you get, the more you you long for home? The more people that you've said goodbye to who have stepped into eternity, don't you long for home? And when you're younger, like, I get it, you don't, that's not you yet, I understand that. But the longer you're in this world, the more you see it's not fulfilling, that it's not your home. And maybe you'll be one of the rare ones, the younger ones, who say, you know what, I get this ahead of time. And I'm going to trust you and I'm going to divorce this world, if you will, and follow the Lord to where he calls me and to be what he wants me to be. The beguiled brother, the blundering believer. And if the goal is restoration, go with me to 1 Corinthians 5. If the goal is restoration, and I say that over and over again because I want you to hear the heartbeat of God while I read words that might feel at first counterintuitive to what God is doing. That might feel like, is that really what he wants? Is that, because, and a lot of times, by the way, you'll hear people who, when they're blasting scripture or disagree, well, Paul, he wasn't Jesus. And that, you know, that's a big thing that's happening these days. I believe that that's just because they don't understand what the Bible really is saying or what Paul's really communicating in his heart. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Verse 1, it's not a blundering believer who we're to restore. It's not a beguiled brother and sister who we are to go and to retrieve. This one is a boasting backslider. In verse 1, he says in chapter 5, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. This is like a big ticket item. He's saying that a man has his father's wife having an affair with his stepmom. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now I've seen this passage used over the years and if you've been around church for a while you have too uh, to bloody people and to bludgeon them and I feel like that's there, it's maybe not the heartbeat of God. I, I know it's not. I can't read the Gospels and say that that's the heartbeat of God. Restoration is the heartbeat of God. So what does this mean? When I'm to remove somebody? How does that even work? He says that, shouldn't you rather mourn? I read this quote. I wish I'd give credit if I could remember who said it. That someone whose heart isn't broken over someone else's sin, it's because your heart isn't broken for your own sin. 
which means I have freedom to not rise up and get angry at somebody. A lot of anger floating around the internet these days. A lot of hate. A lot of anger. And I think that what maybe we should have is a lot of mourning because of the consequences of sin. There is no such thing as victimless sin. And so when I'm angry, maybe I can back that down about 10 notches and instead mourn for what's happening to someone's life. Because every time a marriage falls apart, man, there's children involved. There's family involved. And instead of being angry, maybe we we should mourn more. But he says then in verse 5 that you are, he says, I'm coming, but what you're to do right now is to, and this is the part that makes everybody like wince a little bit, especially if you believe in the unfettered grace like I do. So you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Youch! I mean, how does that even work, right? I'm going to put him on a platter and here, Satan, he's all yours. Like, I mean, what, what, what does that mean? And what I'm about to say, um, someone else has said it better than me. His name is Dr. Henry Cloud. And if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write this down. Henry Cloud, he wrote a book called Boundaries. He's written a book called Necessary Endings. And I would encourage you, especially if you're in relationship or career, anybody in our li- your life, if you're a professional, whatever, this is a great book, a great series of books. He's an expert on this. Because what he is saying is, I'm going to sum this up probably pretty poorly. God's goal is restoration. Jesus' goal is to restore you. But not someone else's restoration is not dependent upon you losing yours. There are moments when it's not the beguiled brother who's just attracted to this world, the, the moment where it's not just blundering in, but there are those who are boasting, belligerent backsliders. Meaning, and I know that word backslider has a lot of pregnant meaning to that too from the 80s, but someone who's saying, look, I'm out there and I'm loving every minute of it. <laughs> Little Seinfeld reference. Um, <laughs> it's the, yeah, I'm not, I'm basically I'm not struggling with this anymore. I'm embracing it and saying, this is who I am. And this is an extreme example, but look to Galatians 5 and look at the, the, the uh, lusts of the flesh and the, the when you're sowing after the flesh, it's obvious. And he's saying to turn them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh because they're not beguiled. They're not blundering. They are boasting about this and saying, we want that. So what is he saying? What Henry Cloud would say is that the, the pain, when, when the pain, I'm going to get this quote wrong. I just posted it last night so I'd try to remember it. When the pain of staying the same is not greater than the pain of changing. Am I butchering this, Rob? Yes, In other words, if it's easier to stay the same than not to change, then you'll just stay the same. Example, you're in a relationship with an alcoholic or a drug addict and there's an addiction involved. And you say you need to change. That's not true. Because as long as you're there enabling them to be that, they don't need to change because everything's going to work great for them. We call it codependency in modern parlance. But when you draw a line in the sand and say, look, I've been riding on your crazy train for 10 years. I'm getting off at the station. If you want to meet me back here, I'll be here. But you take the ride. I'm not going with that ride anymore. 
This is true in abusive situations. How many have sat in an abusive situation and said, I'm going to love them a little bit longer? And they're not restoring the person that they're loving and they're not being restored. Both of them are going down. If you're in a, uh, a beach situation, if you're a lifeguard and you see somebody drowning, what is the worst thing that you, you can do is run out there and try to grab them without any sort of, because they'll pull you down with them. And there are many relationships where you need to prayerfully consider what is God saying? And I believe that it's a team sport. I'm not saying any one of you needs to walk out today and say there's a new sheriff in town. Professional help. Seek wisdom with, with a pastor, with me, or with Cortland. Or with, like, this is a team sport. But when he says to turn them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that their soul might be saved, what he's saying is you and your restoration can't be affected and pulled down by what they're doing. And if they're unwilling to change, if they're unwilling to admit that they're crushing your life and crushing your soul and destroying your children, that that train leaves here. And the destruction of their flesh that their soul might be saved, he talks about what that means in Galatians 5 when he says... The, uh, the, the spirit, the acts, the works of the spirit are obvious. And when you sow after the flesh, you reap destruction. When the prodigal son wanted to leave, what did the father do? Let him. Because the pain of leaving, the pain of losing it becomes the reality for them. At some point, they come to themselves Jimmy, you know this, you've been a place of hope, but that's an everyday occurrence there of brothers and sisters 10, 12, 13 times in recovery because the pain hadn't been too much just yet. And when this talks about, from our perspective, what we get to do here to, quote, turn them over to, this, uh, to the Satan is literally saying, look, that's what you want, that's what you're saying you want, you're proving it over and over again, I love you, but I can't let you destroy me with your choices. And some of you in this room have had to make these decisions and they're painful to cut somebody off and say, look, I can't do this anymore for my sake, for my children's sake. There are consequences to what you're doing and I have to stop that now. And I've sat in a room with some of you and it's horrible and it's painful, but man, the freedom that comes to you because now your restoration no longer depends on theirs and maybe over time, the long obedience in the same direction. Because you know what happened with this guy in 1 Corinthians 5? In 2 Corinthians 2, it worked. He came back. Because the pain was too much. And he finally made the decisions to change the behavior in his life. We don't have any record of how long it took. But if you've been around life any time, you know, probably a long time. So I would encourage you this morning as followers of Jesus to not crush your own restoration trying to save somebody else. You're not a rescuer. You are a restorer. Jesus is the rescuer. For the beguiled brothers, for the blundering believers, the boasting backsliders, Jesus just wants you home. He wants you there because... It's better there. If you live after the Spirit, Galatians 5 tells us, you'll bear the fruit of the Spirit. Patience and long-suffering and joy. Isn't that what you want, right? Isn't that what we all want is joy and happiness? And the fruit of the Spirit is what does it. It's, God hates sin not because he's some giant cosmic bully, not because he's a buzzkill. 
He just knows what it does to us. It destroys us. It kills our relationships. There's one more, and we're going to roll this thing up. Not just a beguiled believer, not just a blundering brother, boasting backslider, but in Titus, this little, short little letter, Paul is talking to, in uh, Titus 3, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. I think it's Proverbs who talks about if you argue, this is another Henry Cloud thing I'm about to butcher, <laughs> arguing with a fool, uh, you, you just, they just yell back at you. You don't get anywhere with them. And I know that sounds harsh because you just called him a fool, but listen, he's saying go to them once. If someone is saying bad things about you, go to them, talk to them. Why once? Because think about it, the last time you've had a disagreement or a misunderstanding, if you sat down with them and talked to them about it, didn't you come back going, oh, oh, never mind, I thought totally that and you thought that, oh, it's all, I get it now. So go to them once because nine times out of 10, it's just a misunderstanding. And you know what, if it didn't work and then you, they're still causing you grief and being divisive, go to them again. Because maybe they, they didn't under, you know how the, the, uh, the world says, first time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. The Bible says go past that. It's all, the Bible's always more. Go a step further than what even the world would say. Go to them again and say, look, I, I know that we just talked about this. I thought we had an understanding. And me, like I always think, well, if I just, I didn't, maybe they just didn't understand. And sometimes they did understand. They just don't like me. <laughs> no, no, I get it. I, say, I get what you're saying. I just don't like you. I don't like it. Every, every Sunday, someone walks out here thinking I'm a genius, and someone walks out thinking I'm an idiot. <laughs> and you know what? Neither of them are right. I'm somewhere in the middle. But, but, <laughs> but it's saying go to them, and by the third time, look, because what happens when you are assassinating, this is what's really happening. You're assassinating someone's character. Every time you open your mouth to badmouth somebody, to like blister them, betray them behind their back. You may not be killing them physically, but you're killing them spiritually. You're killing their reputation. And I think it's critical for us to think through that before we speak and open our mouths. If you work for the Lampo Group, work for Dave Ramsey, they define gossip as if you're complaining to anybody who doesn't have the power to fix the problem that you're talking about, that's gossip. So next time, think, okay, if I'm talking to somebody about this that is, may or may not be true, or even if it is true, because sometimes we justify it and say, well, it's true. But if you're not talking to the person who has something that can fix it, that falls under the definition of gossip. And I would say here at Conduit, I like that. Or open. My phone is the worst kept secret in town. Call me. Talk to me. Talk to Cortland. Talk. We want to have an open, because I'm going to do things that you're not going to understand. I'm going to do things that you're not going to like. I'm going to do things that, oh, I didn't understand, but maybe it was this way. Let's at least talk about it. And as a church, let's fiercely protect each other. Jamie George, the, the pastor up at Journey Church in Franklin, 
his father. I talked to him a long time ago. There was some stuff kind of going on inside of Journey that was kind of poisonous. And, and he told me about the good grapevine. Because, you know, how did you hear it? Heard it through the grapevine. He was encouraging us as believers to start good grapevines, to talk positively about people, to say good things about people. And look, I get it. I'm the, I am guilty as charged. I'll fall into it just like anybody else. And what we have to know that is in our lives, though, personally, if restoration is the goal, and there's a divisive person, especially in a church setting, it's usually just one, isn't it? <laughs> but they bring a lot of people with them. <laughs> but we have to step in and say, look, we're, you can't do that. And then a step in again, look, I, I hear you, but we can't, we can't talk like that, that, that around here. And then if that doesn't work, Paul says, not to restore, not to retrieve, but to rebuff. And to say, not talk to the hand, honey, because the head don't hear you. <laughs> if we're going to be a hospital where broken people can come and a safe place for broken people, we have to make it safe by being warm and inviting and at the same time to say that, hey, you know, if, if someone's in here that could bring harm to someone else, that we, we have to have a conversation about that. If there's division, we have to step in and say, ah, we can't really, we can't just let that go. We have to deal with it. And if you've been around a while, you know we do that. We'll step in and say, hey, I heard you said this. And uh, to, this, to this day, five years in, I haven't had a single person that after we clarified something didn't say, oh, okay, that makes sense. They might not like it, but it made sense. I get that. We jokingly, uh, we refer to it, well, not even jokingly, we refer to it as just the benefit of the doubt. And that's what I would ask for you from our church, from each other, is just the benefit of the doubt. By the way, one of the code words in a church setting, if you feel like, oh, I might be getting into this right now, or if I wonder if you wonder I am, if you have ever, utter, ever uttered the words, well, I don't understand why we don't just, and then insert. That's the gateway <laughs> to getting into the divisive gossipy thing. I don't understand why we did that. I don't understand why we don't just. And if you don't, by the way, that's actually fine. Just come ask and we'll tell you. And I will say this, five years in, we're so blessed I mean, I'm looking around this room and the eyes of people that I just love who have been for us and not against us and who we, even if we didn't disagree, we talked it out. And like, I don't know how other pastors do it or what, but I just, I love our family. And this isn't an admonishment to you personally or anybody in this room. This is just us saying, hey, let's, this is how a family of God can work. And this is how restoration can work. And as our worshipers are coming back, I'm going to end with a... Uh, you know what, Cortland, we'll do this right after. I, I, I want Cortland to tell his story about what he just went through with restoration with our soldiers. Um, but I want to tell you a story that Jesus gave us a, a clue on how to do this. The last night of his life, Jesus, sitting down with the 12 guys, the blundering believers, the beguiled <laughs> brothers, the belligerent betrayers, which Judas was about to be. And Jesus did something pretty amazing. He took off his cloak, it says, and he bent down and he washed their stinky, disgusting, walking barefoot all day feet. The heart of Jesus was not to go running around smelling feet, but to wash them. And us as believers, we can't just run around our only job to try to smell everybody else's feet unless we're willing to wash them. And as we partake of communion, that was Jesus in that same setting. He said, take this, 
drink this blood, be reminded of what I'm about to do for you. Do this often in remembrance. This body that's broken to wash you, to wash me. For every belligerent betrayer, Jesus wants you to come home. Every boasting backslider, Jesus wants you to come home. For every blundering believer, he just wants us to come home. And man, one of the best ways, one of the best things we can do to remind ourselves is that the price that he paid so that you could come home. The price that he paid so that you didn't have to pay. The price that he paid for someone's restoration was his life, not yours. And for those of you that have had to break off relationships, I want you to know I'm so sorry. And I pray for you, and I hope that God brings the restoration in your life. But I also want you to hear me say that I'm proud of you because I know the courage it took to protect your own children in that situation and to know that I'm praying for your family as well, for them to come home. But if there's one thing we can know that we have no control over is whether they're coming home or not, that's up to Jesus and them. And for you this morning, I would encourage you to come to the table and to be reminded of the restoration that Jesus paid for. And as a church moving forward, I want to be, let the great physician come, which means as we got to make the right diagnosis so we get the right prescription. We don't need to amputate something when an antibiotic will do. And the great physician would say that 98% of us, like, it's just, we're just blundering believers. Let's bring you home. Let's restore the beguiled person. Man, just retrieve. Be patient. The love is patient. The love is kind. But in those rare moments, know that even that is an act of restoration. It's an act of a father that loves to say that over this long period of time, that maybe they'll finally realize and figure out that the world wasn't all it was cracked up to be, that it's not our home. And if you're on that journey right now, I love you. Jesus loves you. Loves you enough that in the prodigal son story, who financed the trip? The father. He didn't have to give him the money. He chose to because he knew that at the end of that journey, that, that son would finally come to the end of himself and he was so patient. And then when he came back, what the father, it's the only time when God ran to him. If you're ready to come home this morning, God is running to you. I'd love to pray with you. I'm going to be here with my wife. Come to the table. Be reminded of what Jesus has done. For those of us that are in a place right now where maybe it's a time to do some restoration work around us, still come to the table. Be reminded of the price that Jesus paid for your restoration and for mine. Father, give us wisdom and insight. And work in our hearts today. You're longing for us to come home. Waiting at the gate. Waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves. You didn't send him away because you hated him. You said, go, if this is what you want, come, go see if it's what you want. And then come back to me. What a great father you are to trust and to invest in us. And I pray for those in this room right now whose families are in a, maybe in a little bit of a shambles, for you to give wisdom and to give courage and to give understanding and 
to give patience and strength and long-suffering, all of the fruits of the Spirit. Let us never forget the picture of a God searching and sweeping and desiring and looking just to find the one coin of great worth looking for me. Spirit, move in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.